Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. My name is Gemma Purdy from Monash University. Jakarta's gubernatorial election held earlier this year was perhaps the most divisive and bitterly fought campaign yet seen in modern Indonesian politics. Social media and the internet played a large role in the campaign, characterised by racism and sectarianism. But how much can we blame the internet for the bitterness of this campaign? And how much is it explained by Indonesia's conservative turn more generally? How did technology impact on this election? Are we seeing a new platform for organisation and political activism in Indonesia based on a freedom to hate? To answer these questions and to talk about her recent article on this topic, I'm joined by Associate Professor Melina Lim from Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Welcome, Melina, to Talking Indonesia. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Now, Melina, in looking at your body of work of scholarship, you've been watching the growth of the internet in Indonesia for a long time now, really since the beginning in the late 1990s, and commenting on its expansion and use as a social networking tool. In an article you wrote early on, you noted that in 1998, only 1% of Indonesians use the internet. Today, it is well over 50%, is that right? Yeah, I think almost 50%, it's 132 million. Yeah, and that includes a lot of social media and Facebook users in particular. So can you tell us a little bit about this journey that Indonesia's been on? And, you know, we all have globally been on in our relationship with the internet, but if you can comment particularly on Indonesia's relationship with the internet, how has it changed and what role is it playing in the lives of Indonesians? Interestingly, uh, the internet came to Indonesia just right before the economic crisis in Southeast Asia. So it has a very specific kind of history. It means that the state had no mean, economic mean, to actually develop the technology just like it did with, with other technologies such as TV. It means there's different power relation. So back then, the earliest user of the internet were actually scientists, scholars, and activists who were also internet pioneers. So in a way, that small group of Indonesians also, they play other role as uh, information gatekeepers, as well as the mediator between Indonesians who were disconnected, who are in the national and local boundaries, to the global flow of information, to the global uh, actors. I term this group of people as techno-elites. They are elites, but not because they are politically elites, which is a different kind of elites. They are technologically uh, more advanced than others. The political implication of the internet should be read through that, because these are really, they are politically conscious users. But also it should be read as a sort of like, as a technology, the internet was developed outside of the nation state control. So very grassroots. So it has that kind of like rebellious culture. So it it fits at that moment, right? With the resistance against Suharto, less control if compared to other media. But now the internet all over the world, not only in Indonesia has become increasingly national and local. Because precisely because there are more people online and with social media, especially, right? 
social media platform has become more embedded in various aspects of Indonesian society for everything, uh, social interaction, entertainment, but also politics, and especially in urban areas such as Jakarta, where the online population rate is much higher than the national average. So this is, the relationship has changed, now it's become more embedded in everyday life. So it's very intimately connected to what the changes, dynamic, sociopolitical dynamics of everyday Indonesian, especially in urban areas. Okay, just going back a little bit to what you were talking about with the techno elites having earliest access to the internet in Indonesia and how this was partly used as, well, you described it as a rebellious culture and in some ways used in the resistance against Sahato. But do you think that it played a, a part in creating that revolution or reformasi movement in Indonesia? Was it, was it that important and integral? I think it's important not as a cause or as a major tool, but it cannot really be separated. I always uh, argue that any social movement that successfully mobilized that movement, they would embrace the medium of the time, whether it's a pamphlet in 1960s, for example, or cassette in the Iranian Revolution. And internet was that back in 1998, because other media, especially mainstream media, were controlled by the state. So I use the term, I said the 1998 reformasi might be considered an internet coincidence in the quotation mark uh, revolution. Uh, it's not necessarily said, oh, coincidentally internet came, but what, what I mean is that the internet emerged in Indonesia at precisely the time when other form of media were tightly controlled, but also it tapped into traditional network of information, cyber cafe, warung, other type of social networks, but also because activist network as a human-to-human network make use of that opportunity to seize the moment and use the, the internet as a door to open other channels. So the internet itself was not the principal source of information, but how the how it linkages to other nodes and spaces. I think that's what's more what's more important. Were those spaces also outside Indonesia at that time? Was that an important? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was very important. I think outside Indonesia, the fact that, uh, for example, the one of the most famous, actually the most famous mailing list was Apakabar. Yeah. Was actually it was based in Maryland. First, it, it became very prominent among Indonesian abroad. That's a lot of mailing lists for Indonesian students abroad. And then it connect to Indonesian in Indonesia. And that was the, the main source for controversial anti-Suharto, anti-New Order kind of information that were not available inside. within the country, yeah. inside. Mm-hmm. You've just spoken of it there about how this you know, idea of coincidence uh, at that time, that, that moment, the reformasi moment, I guess, in Indonesia. Were you also quite positive at that time that the internet and social media would become, well, a tool for social activism in Indonesia? No, actually not. not? I think, especially not me, not okay. me. I think many people did, but even back then, I mean, my 
well, as early as 2002, I wrote about the radical movement at that moment. So I compare student movement and radical jihadi activism in the Moluccan conflicts, how they are essentially adopted the internet in the same way. They were not different in their tactic and strategy, because I don't think the internet itself is deterministic in, in democratizing. The content, the narratives that could be mobilized could be anything, including anti-democratic narratives and anti-democratic movement could also use the internet. So it can be used for, for the good and then not so good. Right. And so you've also argued in reference to Indonesia in particular and about the use of social media activism. You, you've used this term, it attracts many clicks but few sticks. What do you mean by that? So in, in my analysis of some social media uh, activism cases, it means that a successful case, such as, for example, Prita case, remain largely an anomaly. Uh, they are not the rule. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? So the case of Prita is actually about a young mother of two. She complained through email, sent an email to her friends and relatives about the mistreatment that she received from an international hospital in Jakarta. But it spread beyond the small circle and eventually the hospital sued her for online defamation. And then the case became viral when someone actually created a Facebook group to support Prita and garner support from all of Indonesia, mainstream media also brought up the issue, especially TV. And there was a movement coined for Frita, so to help Frita pay the fine. And eventually the case was dropped, but the fine, the movement generated really a lot of money. At the same time, though, the, the law, the draconian cyber law used against Frita is never changed. So, so people use overuse that. When was the law established, the cyber law? So yeah, 2008, actually, Indonesian cyber law, it is, is called the Electronic Information and Transaction Law, and is actually initially designed to regulate electronic business transaction, but also it has Article 27, which include a vague definition of defamation, which has been used in libel and defamation case, as well as to curb the freedom of expressions. So this is still intact. The law is still intact. But you're saying that there's very few examples of good outcome from online activism. In my article, I think I said over 99% of this kind of activism fail. So, so yes, social media generates participatory culture. And it could be borrow for civic engagement and political mobilization, but also it's very limited in its capacity to mobilize complex political issues because the network is fast and the production and circulation of information is constantly accelerated. The environment of social media is friendly to simple or simplified narrative. Once you have nuanced, complex narrative, you cannot really sell that online. It's very hard to frame serious political issue, marginalization issue, into a very simple... Into 140 characters. 140 characters, right. But also, social media is not independent from the large media system. In the Prita case, once TV embraced the issue, it became big. But if TV doesn't care or other type of mainstream media don't really embrace the, any cause, it doesn't get viral. So they, they're interrelated. They're still very much dependent on each other. Yeah, yeah, very much. 
but very much related to, to each other. Not to mention, most of Indonesian are online through mobile phones, which is like a amplify, small, light, fast kind of consumption of information. So it's just become shrinking bite culture has become amplified. It brings us up to the 2017 Pilkada elections in Jakarta, which you point out in uh, your article in Critical Asian Studies was an expansion and an extension of political campaigns which had been run for Jakarta governor in 2012 and again even to a greater extent in 2014 with the presidential campaign and elections where political campaign was very much engaging with the digital space. Increasingly, politics is entangled with social media. They can no longer be separated. In terms of talking about the 2017 Pilcada, which preceded by this incredible series of events where the sitting governor was facing blasphemy charges. And so it was a very polarized atmosphere before the campaign actually even started. What did you observe about the role of social media in that campaign? Who was using it? Were the political parties themselves engaged in a different way? Yeah, uh, so all all uh, political parties and candidates, they are all engaged through social media. And in the case of Pilkada, each of the three candidates, they appointed a social media team as part of their campaign strategy. And, and in this case, I, I want to emphasize the fact that social media utilization in Pilkada actually should be read within commercial framework that have become more prominent in political campaign. The Indonesian political parties, they have adopted American way of campaigning. They have branding, right? They have branding team. They use consultant, marketing, how to market the product. So in this case, I think which is kind of detrimental to democracy. All of the candidates in during Pilkada, they said they rely on volunteer. For example, Ahok rely on JustMap and Teman Ahok. Agus Harimurti Yudiono was supported by Karib Agus and Anis Baswedan was, uh, he had uh, established Jakarta Maju Bersama. But some of the volunteers were actually paid. And also beyond that, while none of the candidates publicly admitted to do so, all three employed paid buzzer. This is an online user who is paid to disseminate promotional information, to spam, <laughs> right? On Twitter, you could see actually, you could actually track them because they copy-paste certain information, certain link everywhere on mainstream media, particular portals. Do they create new persona? Yeah, they do. They actually steal. Sometimes they just steal any photographs. And, and you look at the Facebook. Yeah. Uh, so fake, fake they just, Yeah, fake, fake account. And some of them are bots, which is like uh, robots on Twitter. Some, some are human. I asked around and some of them say they were paid around two to four million rupees per month. Yeah, which is not bad, right? When you're students, it's pretty good. And in addition to volunteer and busters, but also there are the so-called micro-celebrities. These are individual users who use their influence, usually they have huge followers, to mobilize around certain cause, sometimes social cause. Usually they are very ideologically minded. Like these micro-celebrities, they are actually source of traffic for uh, many campaign portals. Do they get paid? Uh, well, I cannot really know whether they, really, they are really paid or not. It seems to me that 
the mechanism is not necessarily getting paid directly, but they get ads. So they are they get paid commercially to the traffic. So for some reason, and I cannot say for sure, but based on what I see to the traffic, there is a sort of almost an agreement that their links would be put on certain portal and they will do the same, which means there is some communication backdoor that I can say for sure because I could track. And there's a lot of traffic between certain candidates with certain micro celebrities. It sounds like a sophisticated setup. Did you get an opportunity to see inside any of these organizations and how it's run or is it quite secretive? I think they're quite secretive. Publicly, they will say they are I'm not paid, right? Which is which is probably true, no direct payment. But but I can't possibly technically I could really track. I track, for example, uh, SeaWorld.com, which is a pro AHOC, get over 10% from Denis Siragar, for example, right? And then you could see that some commercial establishments, such as Bukalapak, that also work around politics, not only AHOC, but also Anis and Agus and all these candidates. During Pilkada 2017 in particular, what was everybody talking about? Was it about the policies or was it more about the personalities? More about personality. That's why I think when I said commercial framework is very influential because branding, right? The branding tap into emotion seemingly to be the major or the central strategy of all candidates. Therefore, the implication of this is that the voters were drawn to, to discuss about personality, about labels, rather than having any in-depth conversation about policies. Or let's say if they, they think they talk about policies, mostly about the symbol, the pictures, right? Uh, photos of this and that, achievement, photos of achievement, as if they were talking about policy, but they didn't really look at, at the actual policies. You've also argued in your article that it became a really polarizing environment for people active online. You had to be either one side or the other. Is that how you were describing it? Yeah, there is a tendency. This is a link to what I said earlier about oversimplification of narratives, right? There is there is no space for complex or nuanced opinions. And first, Indonesia itself has become increasingly polarized. So social media doesn't doesn't polarize people, but amplify. It amplifies fragmentation within society. But also precisely because the campaign, the mobilization and the tactic and strategy, they focus on branding and focusing on or mobilizing the emotion rather than rationality, is actually exacerbate polarization even further. So people people probably a large number of social media users could identify what they don't like, what they hate, right? Rather than identifying what are important for them. I think we're becoming more and more aware of how the internet and the algorithms that drive Facebook and those kinds of sites, social media sites, telling us what we want to know in a way that we're being fed a type of news and we're connecting with certain types of people. We're not really getting different views. I, sort of like I use this, uh, this term, right, uh, algorithmic enclaves, to actually to kind of challenge a little bit our perception. Because I think... What we know right now, we, we know the, the term filter bubble, as if we are really isolated, right? As if really that every single person only exposed, are only exposed to one kind of viewpoints, or we only hang out online with people who, who are like us. But I don't think it is actually the case. So I use the term algorithmic enclaves to show the more dynamic relationship with algorithm. 
I don't think algorithm de- like determines what kind of information we consume. So in the case of Indonesia, actually Indonesians are exposed not only to information based on their own political preferences, but also their context preferences. And Indonesian users typically have a very large and diverse network of contacts. I have, for example, all kind of online friends, typically often about a thousand friends, so expose them to varied political discussion. However, because of the nature of algorithm, the click mechanism allow extreme information to actually to be more popular than others. It means you are more exposed to either extreme information that you really, you really love or believe in and information that you really hate or you disagree. You don't really see things in between. So for anti and pro ahok social media user, precisely the exposure to this disagreeable information and discussion actually just confirm their own viewpoints. And this intensify the antagonistic relationship they cultivated with their opponents. Not because they were living in different bubble, but because they actually could see each other through a kind of antagonistic relationship. So, and, and this is actually allow people to move within boundaries as well, right? It's not like rigid or or like a bubble and you have to pop it. <laughs> so, so I use the term enclaves, which is more of sociology, obviously, to show this dynamic, more dynamic relationship, which I've seen during the course of Ilkada, which is, I define it as a, a kind of enclaves that are formed whenever a group of individuals facilitated by their constant interaction with algorithms, so all the time, attempt to create a perceived, what they, they see, perceived shared identity online for defending their beliefs and protecting their resources from both real and perceived threats. So they are very defensive, right? As if they are all victims and under threat and they need to protect their own pure ideology. Of course, they connect with each other by defining their enemies rather than what bind them together. You also refer to this as a new tribal nationalism. What do you mean by that? It's not necessarily new because Indonesians have formed these kinds of groups and enclaves, but it's happening in a different place. Yeah, it's happening in different places. And I think also it is especially interesting to to observe minorities who for a while had no space, right? Uh, Had no space to actually voice their concern. And I think it's interestingly to, to look at of course, to the pre-booming anti-Chinese Christian, that's that's obvious. You see them before, and you see them now online. But but I think what is interesting is all Chinese Christian right wing who use Ahok as a symbol of injustice, uh, and they proclaim their love for Indonesian Republic. They are also excluded. For me, it's interesting because you probably didn't see it before. But at the same time, all of these groups, whether they are anti-Chinese or anti-Muslim or anti-communist, right? They are all anti-poor. They don't care about Ahmadis. They don't care about Papuan. They don't care about persecution against Shia. And they all use the same the same mantra, NKRI Hargamati. That's actually the term is overused again and again. In your article, you use this very strong term in the title, freedom to hate, which you argue is a transmutation of freedom of speech. You also point out that this is happening not only in Indonesia, but around the world. What do you mean by freedom to hate? It's not like people love to hate, but I think inability of people to express what 
they actually collectively need to identify the common needs, common interests, is actually, uh, we have no ability to do that anymore. The easiest way to deal with it is to exclude, right? So to be together because we hate someone or a certain group, but the construction of enemy is the, the old recipe, right, to be united. And it's not like people love to do that, but they have no other way or they don't really know because because I think political system manipulate different spatialities and different temporalities, not only fast, short, quick mobilization. Can I ask about the future if we're looking towards the presidential elections in a couple of years? Are we going to see this just being heightened further? <laughs> I'm really scared for the future. On one hand, it is scary. It's going to be messy. It's going to be heightened, right? It's going to be a new level of super fake news, right? A hyper. But also, I don't think it's going to be changed that much in terms of, you know, marketing. It's going to be more commercial. Having said that, also we have a couple of years for uh, any parties. What I mean is not political parties, but any groups of individuals who are concerned about other issues, issue of injustice, inequality, to might be able to do something. I think activists who truly care about politics need to really work really hard and then incorporate social media as well, but also to learn how to deal with, with this kind of polarized issue, not by actually playing with it. I'm more concerned about the liberals who play the games, which is what happened in 2017 in Pilkada. I think they should take a high role because I think to fight the right-wing extremist narrative by demonizing them is not a good tactic. It's not the right one. It didn't work at all. Also, you cannot just fight untruth with other untruths, right? So I think this is a lesson learned for friends who probably mean well by playing the game, but but obviously it doesn't work. It didn't work. Uh, should find ways. Need a third space. That's kind of what you're saying, like a space for for more meaningful and more meaningful conversation uh, for facts, facts and political facts and policies issues. I think I think to to actually to take side is fine, right? For example. Let's say pro Ahok, for example, right? To to take side, but with by providing reasons rather than doing this all count countering rather than attacking the other side. And to a certain degree, during the field press 2014, to a certain degree, there were some individual and group who played that role, but. I didn't see any during the Pilkada. So we need to bring back that common sense and rational and people who will provide some leadership in terms of information. Provide information rather than rumor, opinions and stories that not evidence-based, I guess. And I don't think I agree with neutrality in terms of position, but because I think to position yourself, whether as a scholar or as a uh, observer or as a journalist, I think it's, it's actually important. But I think to provide information, to generate information that is actually useful for people to understand why voting for Ahok, for example, or Jokowi or whomever is important and why it is better for the future, that's what is lacking, right? Because it's, it's sort of like just it's with the attacking mode that's going to the extreme and playing the game, including some intellectual who just mocking an any supporter, for example, it doesn't help, right? Calling people, yeah, calling people like 
uh, their anti-intellectual talking down. I think on daily basis. I don't think it helps, and it's kind of confuse people in the middle. People in the middle said, "Okay, we don't know anymore because we generally wanted to know. There is no, nobody's perfect, but if we need to to vote for A or B, we want to know, but we couldn't find that precisely because intellectuals and journalists and scholar they just are attacking each other. So these noises are not necessary. It doesn't really help the case. I think it doesn't really help Indonesia." That was Malina Lim, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in Digital Media and Global Network Society in the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University in Canada. Malina and I discussed her recent article published in Critical Asian Studies about the use of social media in the recent Pilkada elections in Jakarta. You can find her article via the link provided on our website. Talking Indonesia will return on the 31st of August. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.